This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So we'll start with a question. Uh, anyone ever promised you something? Promised they do something for you? Promised they would give you something? Maybe they promised they would uh, be somewhere or take you somewhere and then failed to fulfill that promise? You know, maybe they, maybe they just legitimately forgot. They forgot to put it in their calendar. Or maybe something came up and they weren't able to do what they said. Or maybe they never had any intention of ever following through in the first place. It was nothing more than an empty promise that they made. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus promised his disciples something. We see this at the end of Matthew in a passage known as the, the Great Commission. And he said to them, behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. And then Matthew gives them kind of like that like mic drop. That's the end of the book. But look what happened next. Luke's gospel kind of continues on. He adds another little bit. Luke closes his gospel saying in uh, chapter 24, verse 50, he says, and he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now, they got to be thinking like, what's the deal, Jesus? You said you'd never leave us and then you poof, up and left us. You'd think they might be a little frustrated, right? Maybe a little dejected, even angry at Jesus. But no, he goes on to say in verse 52, and they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. That doesn't make any sense. How, how is that? How is this apparent failed promise of Jesus, how does that lead to worship and great joy? Like, are these guys secretly actually happy to be rid of Jesus? Like, are they, are they excited to go back to fishing and smelling like fish every day? You know, Matthew, maybe he's... Excited to go back to skimming taxes, maybe. No. No, these guys, they knew there was something more to the promise that Jesus made them when he said, I will be with you always. And that something more is what we're going to see this morning in John chapter 16 as we conclude our series, Following Jesus, inspired by Henry Nouwen's book, Following Jesus, Finding Our Way Home in an Age of Anxiety. And John 16 takes place, uh, it's late Thursday evening, the, the night before Jesus was crucified. He's, he's finished a, a meal, he shared a meal with his disciples that we refer to now as the Last Supper. And they've left the upper room and he's, he's leading them through the streets of Jerusalem, leading them to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And as he's walking, he warns them. He warns them of the oppression that they're going to face, the, the cost of following him. He, he tells them and he, he warns them how the world is going to hate you the way it hates me. The world is going to reject you the way it's rejected me. The world is going to persecute you the way it's about to persecute me. And the world may even kill you the way it's about to kill me all for simply being associated with me, for being my followers. They're going to inflict violence. And they're going to inflict this violence in the name of God, in defense of God, thinking they're offering service to God, Jesus says in verse 2. 
But then he goes on to say that that those who do these things, those who are hating others, rejecting others, persecuting, even killing others, and doing that as supposed service to God, Jesus says, they have not known the Father. They, They have not known me. They are not my followers. They are not God's children. Because Jesus says, Jesus didn't say the world would recognize us by our violent defense of God, did he? No, he said the world would know us by our love for one another. And Jesus didn't say this to scare them. And we said it, he says, to keep them from falling away. So that they weren't surprised when, when their hour came. And when it did, they would remember what he had told them. But then Jesus, he continues the conversation and he he returns back to a topic from earlier that evening at dinner. And he says in verse 4, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going away to him who sent me. And none of you are asking, where are you going? Now, This isn't insecurity in Jesus' part, okay? Jesus isn't bothered by the fact that when he went to grab his suitcase and and gathers things, clearly getting ready to go away for somewhere somewhere for an extended period of time, he wasn't worried that nobody bothered asking him, hey, Jesus, where are you going? When are you going to be back? And like, wherever you're going, can you bring us something back? Can you bring us like some candy or something? I don't know, a little trinket. Not from the airport, though, like a real souvenir from a real place. Don't do that thing right before you get on the airplane. That's not a real souvenir. No one asked him that. But early at dinner, Peter did. He asked him, Lord, where are you going? But nobody was asking now. No one was asking in this moment. Why do you think that is? He says in verse 6, because I've said these things to you, because I've told you of the suffering that lies ahead, not only for me, but for those who follow me, now sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus' response wasn't, driven by insecurity, but out of empathy. See, imagine this. Jesus knew what the next 24 hours held. Despite knowing the physical pain that awaited him the next day, despite knowing the emotional pain of betrayal and abandonment by those who were his friends, his followers, in spite of all that, Jesus remained more concerned with their sorrow that they were feeling as they began to realize that their teacher, their rabbi, their friend that they had spent nearly every moment of every day these last three years with was about to leave them. And then he says in verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. Now, Jesus isn't trying to let him down easy. It's not like uh, breaking up with someone and saying, you know what, this is actually good for you. It's, it's better for you that I'm breaking up with you and I'm not in your life. It's good. You should be thanking me for breaking up with you. And he's not offering some sort of consolation prize. Like Jesus isn't trying to make lemonade out of rotten lemons. Uh, he's not like, hey, you know what, I, I got to go. I got better things. I mean, I just got other things to do. But like this new guy's coming. And trust me, you're going to love him. He's great. Because this helper that was going to come, this advocate Jesus would send, this counselor, this comforter, this friend, as Eugene Peterson refers to him in the message, 
It was none other than the Holy Spirit. It was none other than the Spirit of Christ, as Paul refers to him in Romans 8 9. And the Holy Spirit, he's not some second-rate consolation prize. He's not some created being, but God himself. The Spirit is the one whom the Nicene Creed declares to be the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. But not only that, the, the, the Holy Spirit, he's not some impersonal force. No, he is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Which is why Jesus didn't say, I will send it to you. He said, no, he said, I will send him to you. But Jesus here, he's not stressing the Spirit's gender. The Spirit is neither male or female. No, he is stressing his personhood. Because as Michael Reeves writes in his book, Delighting of the Trinity, uh, one of the books that we're currently reading in The Way, he writes, if God was in heaven and his Spirit a mere force, then God would be more distant than the moon. But Jesus isn't distant, is he? He's near. Because as Christ ascended, the Spirit of Christ descended. As Augustine wrote, we have Christ's presence in the Spirit's presence. Through the indwelling of the Spirit sent by Jesus to continue the work of Jesus, as Leslie Newbigin writes, Jesus, he remains with us right here, right now, in this place, this very day. Not physically, but spiritually. Until the end of the age, until he returns. I think that's important to know because here's the thing. We, we can trust what Jesus says even when we don't fully understand at the time what Jesus means. Does that make sense? We can trust what Jesus says even if at the time we don't understand what he means. And so as they continue walking towards the garden that evening, Jesus, he, he goes on to share with them two ways that the Spirit would continue the work of Jesus by convicting the world and by guiding the church. And so the first way the Spirit continues the work of Jesus is the Spirit convicts the world. And specifically, he's going to convict the world in three ways. Look at verse 8 with me. Jesus says, and when he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, like the Spirit, he's going to confront the world's beliefs. He's going to expose the error of its ways, proving it to be wrong in the way that it views and thinks about sin, the way it views righteousness, and the way it views judgment. And Jesus, uh, knowing we probably didn't understand what he just said, even though we can trust what he said, he goes on to clarify and explain what he says here in verses 9 to 11. He says, concerning sin, here's what I mean. He says, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, what I mean is, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, what I mean is because the ruler of this world is judged. What he's effectively saying is that the Spirit is going to declare to the world who I am, why I came, and what it is that I accomplished. Now let's, let's look at those three. First, the Spirit, he's going to convict the world of, of who Jesus is, right? He said in verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. They do not believe in who I am. And yet John, he, he concludes his gospel saying that he, he wrote his gospel so that you may believe in who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, the name above all names. 
And so sin at its core is a rejection of Jesus, a rejection of who Jesus is, failing to believe in him as the Messiah, as the Christ, failing to believe in him as the singular way to God, failing to believe in the truth of his words and the life that he offers through his death. It's rejecting that and instead following your own way and instead defining your own version of truth and instead living a life in whatever way you desire. See, Jesus isn't some wise prophet offering suggestions for a happier, more fulfilling life. He's not some moral teacher that came to provide us with a good example. And he's, he's not some created being who became like God, but not quite God, kind of like God 1.5. And yet those were beliefs that the world had in the early days. Those are the beliefs that led uh, the global church to gather in the town of Nicaea in the year 325, not 300 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to define and declare exactly who we as the church believe Jesus to be and put that belief into words, the words of what we now know as the Nicene Creed. And so it, it declares who we believe Jesus to be. And so read this with me. Let's declare and hear each other declare who we believe Jesus to be. Read this with me. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, of the same substance as the Father. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the eternal divine Word who is in the beginning with God, as God, and who became flesh and dwelt among us. That is who Jesus is. And the Spirit will convict the world of that, proving it to be wrong in who it believes Jesus to be. And some are going to have their hearts softened by this conviction, believing in who Jesus is, leading them to repentance, following Jesus, receiving his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his joy. But others will reject Jesus, and their hearts will be hardened, leading to their own condemnation. But the Spirit will convict the world of who Jesus is, Second thing Jesus says is that the Spirit convicts the world of why Jesus came. He says in verse 10, he says concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Jesus wasn't the Messiah the world wanted. I think we've all been in a situation where we were looking forward to something and it, that's not what I expected. That's how the world viewed Jesus. Because after all, how could the one sent by God to bring about life and secure victory, how could he be sentenced to die and suffer defeat? It, it, it looks, guys, it looks like your king failed you. He left you. But to claim his death as defeat and his leaving as abandonment is to miss the very reason Jesus came. And so the creed continues with this. Read this with me on why Jesus came. For us and for our salvation, he came, full stop. I don't know if we need any more. That's why he came. But I went ahead and made the slide, so let's keep reading. You okay with that? Let's go back to the beginning. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. 
He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. There's another slide behind me, isn't there? Did it not go up there? I didn't put it in. That's what happens when your pastor does a slide. The creed continues on, and it says the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. His death wasn't defeat. No, it was the battleground for his victory because through his death, we are forgiven of our sin. And through his resurrection, we are freed from sin. That is why Jesus came. He came for our salvation, for our redemption, for our sake, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that we could stand before God as his beloved children, clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so while the world may believe that simply being good enough is sufficient, and even some in the church will preach a a gospel of behavior modification, of teaching you how you can become good enough for God. What the Spirit does is it convicts us. It proves that our self-righteous attempt to make ourselves good enough for God, to be right with God, to be nothing more than polluted menstrual garments, the prophet Isaiah says, in the eyes of God. That's how God views our self-righteous attempt to clean ourselves and make ourselves enough good enough for Him. The plan actually backfires, doesn't it? And so rather than that, hear the words of Jesus calling out, saying, you are not responsible for this. You are not responsible for this impossible task of overcoming your sin on your own. You're not responsible for making yourself good enough for God or right with God because I already did that for you. That's why I came. And so stop trying and start believing. Believing in who I am. Believing in why I came. The Spirit is the one that convicts us of that. And third, the Spirit convicts the world of what it is that Jesus accomplished. Of what it is that he accomplished. Of why this matters. Of what is to come. And he says in verse 11 concerning judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit, he, he's, he's a comforter, and he comforts us with the truth that the battle's already been won, right? Victory is secured. The Bears have already won the Super Bowl this year, even though it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Really bad analogy, because that ain't happening. But the creed goes on to say, that he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. Jesus will return and he will reign, amen? And justice will be served. He will hand out his judgment, righting all the wrongs, restoring all that is broken, restoring our dead bodies and renewing creation, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And our belief in that certainty of our ability to walk by faith and not by sight, it comes from this conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus still had a lot of things he wanted to say to them. Right? Three years they were together, he still had more to say, but they were running short on time. He wanted to get to the garden. He wanted to be alone with the Father. He wanted to pray knowing what was coming ahead, and he knew the guards were on their way, that they would be arresting him before long. But he also knew 
that the 11 that were still with him, that they just couldn't emotionally bear to hear anymore. It was too much right now. And so he, he offers some words of encouragement in verse 13. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you. It's going to be okay. He's going to guide all of you, and he's going to guide you in the same way that I have been guiding you. And then he goes on to show how the spirit guides the church. And I say the Holy Spirit guides us as the church rather than just uh, the Holy Spirit guides us as followers of Jesus because I think it, it better expresses the, the unity that Jesus desires with us and among us, among those in whom the Spirit dwells, among followers of Jesus. Eugene Peterson, he, um, he, he once wrote, the church is not just an aggregate of Christians. It is not simply a collective term for talking easily about the many individuals who have similar beliefs about God. No, the church is an entity all its own. It has an organic life with a particular spiritual shape, shaped by the indwelling of the Spirit, characteristics and qualities. He goes on to say it is an organic spiritual body filled with the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, with Christ as the head and all of us together as members, as the body. And as we are incorporated into it, we live lives not our own. We become participants in the church's life. And this life, our life, together as the church, is guided by the Spirit. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 13 to 15. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, let's not miss what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is showing his followers, disciples, how they can trust the Spirit, how they can trust the Spirit that he will send. Jesus knew they trusted him. He spent three years with them. And in that time, they could see him. They could touch him. They could hear from him audibly. But now he's sending someone new, someone they don't know, someone they probably don't trust. But not only that, it's someone that they can't physically see. It's someone they can't actually touch. It's someone they can't audibly hear. And if we're honest, I think we struggle in very much the same way with the Holy Spirit, don't we? We're good with the Father and Son. We're good with that, but we're a little skeptical of the Spirit, of who He is, of what He is. We, we struggle to trust the Spirit in part because we found so many supposed Spirit-filled leaders to be found out to be nothing more than frauds. And over time, my fear is that we've functionally believed in a duality rather than a trinity. Father, Son, and that other guy that we kind of keep under control and keep in the corner and we only let out at certain times. We sing a song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, but only over there. And if you don't believe me, I want you to notice how your body responds when I say phrases like, 
spiritual practices. When I say things like Lectio Divina, right, a divine spiritual reading of Scripture, something that uh, we've been doing every week of this series to close this sermon. Or when I say, uh, I feel, I sense the prompting of the Spirit. I, I hear the Spirit speaking. I, I feel the Spirit moving. Or listening to God's word with an openness to the leading of God's Spirit. If you feel your body tensing up as I say those phrases, that is a physical manifestation of our own skepticism, our own lack of trust in the Spirit. And like, I don't say that to shame you. Let's just acknowledge it. Because in reality, all we're simply describing is a reliance on the Spirit, trusting in the guidance of the Spirit. And so let's listen to the words of Jesus as he shows us three ways that his spirit guides us, his church, and helping us to trust the spirit. And first, what he says is that the Holy Spirit guides the church in truth, right? He says in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Sometimes your points write themselves. Jesus, earlier that evening at dinner, he declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And now his spirit was going to continue guiding them into that truth. Meaning that if we trust Jesus, and we trust Jesus, amen? If we trust Jesus, then we should trust his spirit. His spirit stirring, his spirit leading, his spirit guiding. Knowing that the spirit is never going to speak in a way that is contrary to God's word. Knowing that the spirit is never going to lead in a way contrary to God's will. And that means trusting in the guiding of the Spirit. It requires a couple of things. It requires discernment so that we can distinguish the stirring of the Spirit from just indigestion, from eating too late last night. And it requires community. It requires others coming along and helping us discern, was that my own desires or the Spirit's desire? Was that the Spirit speaking or words I put into the mouth of the Spirit? Because we're... We are really good at over-spiritualizing, aren't we? We're really good at that. You know, the Spirit led me to put up stained glass windows in the sanctuary. The Spirit led me to do that. No, I just like stained glass windows, and I'm kind of getting sick of the room being dark. That's all. The Spirit led me to wear a blue checkered shirt today. No, he didn't. It was just the next up in the rotation. Yeah, I kind of have a rotation. Actually, it's the jacket rotation. I just got to get a shirt that matches it. We're good at over-spiritualizing things, speaking on behalf of the Spirit, putting words in his mouth. And so here's, here's three real simple ways to help you discern if it's the Spirit. Number one, if, if you hear the Spirit speaking in a way that contradicts what God has already said, that's not the Spirit speaking, that's you. We good with that one? Here's number two. If you feel the Spirit leading in a way that leads you further from God, that's not the Spirit leading, that's you. Or that's someone in your life who's also not leading you by the guidance of the Spirit. And number three, this is my favorite. If the Spirit is always saying what you want Him to say, and always leading you where you want to go, and always leading you where you want to go when you want to go might not be the spirit guiding, might be you. Might be. 
this requires discernment. It requires community, and it requires humility. But it also requires courage and trust and faith because the Spirit's going to say things you don't want to hear. And the Spirit's going to lead you to places you don't want to go. But what I need you to know is that the Spirit is never going to lead you away from God. The Spirit will always guide us as the church, as followers of Christ, into all truth, truth of the words of Jesus according to the way of Jesus. Amen? Always without fail, he will. Second, the Holy Spirit guides the church with authority. He guides with authority. He says in verse 13, he says, he's not going to speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit is not some second-rate spokesperson. He's not God's PR man. If you call heaven's customer service number, and the Spirit answers, and you don't like the answer he gives you, please don't ask to speak to his manager. Because you're already talking to God. You're speaking with somebody who has the authority of God, who is speaking as God, who is himself God. And Jesus, he wanted his disciples, he wanted us as his followers to trust the spirit that he was sending, knowing that when he speaks, it is as if, is as if Jesus is speaking himself. When Peter and Paul and James and Jude, when they wrote letters to the churches, they wrote under the guidance of the Spirit with the authority of Jesus given to him by the Father. When they wrote the words of Scripture. And while the Spirit is no longer breathing new words of Scripture, he most definitely continues to speak with that same authority. And that means when the Spirit is leading, we should be listening to the Spirit, leaning into the Spirit, rather than, rather than quenching and silencing the Spirit. But our lives, they are so fast and so busy, so loud and chaotic, that all we do is quench the Spirit. How are we ever going to hear Him in all the noise? How are we ever going to sense Him with all the commotion? And so... Trusting in the Spirit's guiding means slowing down a little bit. It means sitting in the silence and the stillness, quieting that loud outer noises of our surroundings and the loud inner noises of our fears, as Henry Nellen writes, so that we can be attentive to the Spirit's presence in our lives and his guidance of our lives, guiding the church, guiding it with authority. And the third is this, the Holy Spirit guides the church for Christ's glory. He says, he will glorify me. That is why he came. And so Jesus, he is asking us, he's saying, trust my spirit. Because he guides in my truth, with my authority, all for my glory. Everything the spirit does is for the glory of Christ. Everything. Convicting the world of who Jesus is, why he came, and, and what he accomplished, it's all about bringing more people to believe in Jesus, which is all about bringing more glory to Christ. He is guiding the church, leading us in the way of Jesus, in obedience to the words of Jesus, living a life that brings glory to Christ. It's all about bringing glory to Christ, isn't it? Everything is about that. And so do you see now how when Jesus 
promised to be with us. Always. Every moment of every day. Everywhere. Until the end of the age. Until he returned. That rather than an empty promise that he failed to fulfill. It was instead a promise he very much fulfilled. And he fulfilled it in the sending of his spirit. And through his spirit. Jesus Christ is present with us. Right here. Right now. In this very place. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.